What is our Christian hope? Consider this answer. The Christian hope is that when we die in Christ, we will go to heaven and be with Jesus. What do you think of that answer? We hear the hope stated in those terms often, especially when a loved one dies who professes faith in Christ, and it certainly is a precious truth. But is that the Christian hope? What's lacking in that answer? What's left out? Well, that answer leaves out the fulfillment of all of God's promises. For God promises justice, that every sin will be paid for, that he will right all wrongs, and that all sins not paid for by the death of Jesus will be paid for by the perpetrators of those sins. If our hope is only that when we die, we will go to heaven, there's no promise there of justice. God promises triumph. Satan will be defeated. He will be thrown into the lake of fire. And all who oppose Jesus will be overwhelmed. That's not stated. If we think of our hope only as going to heaven when we die. God promises a renewed creation so that the impact of the fall is over once and for all, completely. You know, Paul tells us that the entire creation groans with eager expectation for the revealing of the sons of God for an end of its slavery to corruption. That's not stated. If we only think of our hope as going to heaven when we die. And most of all, God promises that all of these wonderful things are going to happen through the return of the Lord Jesus. And that's not stated if we think of our hope as just going to heaven when we die. You see, that first answer I gave our hope is going to heaven when we die. That's personal to me. It's personal to each Christian individually. But God's promises concern the entirety of the created order. So our Christian hope is not that when we die, we go to heaven. Our Christian hope is that Jesus Christ will return and reign. He will be triumphant. He will implement perfect justice. He will usher in those new heavens and new earth. And all who die in Christ Jesus will be part of his perfected, holy, spotless bride, as we sang. And we will rejoice as part of that bride for all eternity. And as we said last week, he will give us God-glorifying fulfilling work for all eternity that will be a great joy. That's our hope. So today we finish this series on the, Paul's two letters to the church in Thessalonica 
We started this series in mid-October. I thought I was only going to preach 17 or so sermons. It ended up being 24 on these books. We've seen a lot of detail in the 23 previous sermons. I want to wrap up this series by zooming out from the details, trying to underline the main point of these two great letters. And we'll do that by considering the way that the Apostle relates four key ideas to one another. These are interrelated. That's been my struggle in putting the sermon together. Because I kind of want to talk about one, and then the third one, and then go back to the second, and then the fourth, and the first. So we'll see. Pray for me that I can preach it boldly as I ought to preach, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, but that I'll also preach it clearly. So the four words. Word, hope, holiness, and endurance. Word, hope, holiness, and endurance. So word. Paul has communicated God's word to the Thessalonians both through verbal teaching when he was in their presence and through writing them letters. How did they respond? 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. You see, Paul was not giving the Thessalonians his philosophy. He was not proclaiming the teaching of some brilliant man, some guru. He was speaking and later wrote the word of God. And that word of God then worked among them mighty, powerfully. As the author of Hebrews says, that word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And it was that type of activity that Paul saw displayed in the church in Thessalonica. The apostle also says in 2 Thessalonians 2 that he declared or proclaimed to them the gospel of God. He declared, he declared, I'm sorry, this is 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 2 and 9. He proclaimed to them the gospel of God. Gospel means good news, as you know. So he proclaimed to them the word, he proclaimed to them the gospel. Those two go right together. God's word is good news for those in whom it works. God's word tells us truth. Cutting through the fog of our desires and misunderstandings. Sounding a clear trumpet blast that drowns out the many voices that clamor for our attention. Waking us, sobering us from the drunkenness that results from being intoxicated with the world's baubles. 
As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, we must keep awake and be sober. To be sober is to have our minds shaped and renewed by the word so that we can see the world as it really is and not as it pretends to be. Not as we may want it to be. But to see truth, to see God's description of who he is, who we are, how we can be reconciled to him, where the world is headed. So God's word is the only way that we can sober up from the intoxication that is prevalent throughout history. God's word is the only voice that speaks these deep truths, truths unchanged from the dawn of time. God's word is the only truly good news. So Paul tells the Thessalonians in chapter 3, verse 1 of the second book, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run and be glorified as happened among you. The church, the the word ran the race in Thessalonica and it glorified itself, it glorified God, it glorified Jesus as people were brought to conviction and came to faith. And the word was even glorified when those words of condemnation went out for those who rebel against God. And God had that fulfilled that promise also. But for those in the Thessalonian church, they accepted the word for what it truly was, the word of God, and that word sobered them, enabled them to think straight, to think clearly, and they came to faith in Jesus. So they are to pray that God would do the same amongst many other peoples elsewhere, outside of Thessalonica, And they are to pray that the word of God would run and be glorified, ultimately triumphing over all opposition, over every philosophy, over every religion, over every rebellious thought. And so we must do the same. Pray for the triumph of the word of God, that God's word would run and be glorified. We must pray. For the enemy is actively at work trying to keep the word from running and being glorified. When the word does cut through the fog of unbelief that Satan has placed around us, Satan then tries to distort the word through false teaching, and we see a lot of that, or he tries to divert us by getting us to put other writings or authorities on par with Scripture. And that happened in Thessalonica. Remember, Paul has to write to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, first few verses, We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. So you see what's happened. Evidently, they've received a letter 
And they've received false teachers who are teaching something contrary to biblical truth. And the letter is signed Paul. The letter pretends to be from the apostle. And thus, when Paul concludes 2 Thessalonians, he writes this, a verse we didn't consider last week. Verse 17 of 2 Thessalonians 3. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Most of the rest of the letter was written by an amuensis, someone else who was writing while Paul presumably dictated it. Here, Paul writes with his own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. So see, even in the first century, Satan tried to act by making prevalent false teaching, sending out letters that supposedly were from Paul that were not. Well, Satan continues such attempts at deception today, whether by exalting the latest author or philosopher, implying that anything new is more authoritative, better, truer than anything that's old, or to the opposite of that, Satan doesn't worry about being consistent, publicizing writings from New Testament times, discovering writings from New Testament times, and say, look, here are writings just as old as the Bible that tell a different story. They give a different account of what happened in the times of Jesus. And as I indicated a few weeks ago, this happens every year around Easter and Good Friday, right? The end ends... Our culture, there will be things published, maybe it's an ancient manuscript that someone has found or someone has translated, which then undermines the truth of God's word. But friends, truth does not change. As we sang, truths unchange from the dawn of time. It will echo down through eternity. What was true about God and about man 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, is true today. And we do not believe the Bible because it's ancient, right? That's not the reason we believe the Bible. And so, if we find other ancient writings, so what? Paul has just said that there were writings in his day when he wrote 2 Thessalonians that were false that were supposedly from him and were not. Maybe we'll find that letter someday, right? Paul's supposed signature on it, which is not genuine, which circulated in the church in Thessalonica. That church, that letter has no authority, just because it's old, just because it's contemporary with the New Testament writings. There are plenty of ancient falsehoods. The Bible describes many of those ancient falsehoods. We have the Word of God today in the 66 books of the Old and the New Testament. We, like the Thessalonians, should accept the Word of God for what it truly is, the Word of God. Only then 
can we sober up. Only then can we think straight. And only then will that mighty word be at work in us as it was amongst the Thessalonians. So that's first, the word. Second, hope. The word of God communicates to us truth and the word of God communicates to us God's promises. And these promises give us hope. The truth that God created us in his image to show what he is like. The truth that we rebelled against him, declaring we knew better than he what is in our own best interest. The truth that having violated the purpose of our creation, we deserve judgment, we deserve to be rejected in the same way that a, a potter would throw out a bowl that's misshapen and will never serve its purpose, and he just tosses it in the trash heap. The truth that God, after the fall, then purposed to create out of rebellious humanity a people for his own possession who will fulfill his purposes, who will shine with his image, who will glorify his name. And the truth that God then worked over the centuries, particularly through the people of Israel, to communicate his character through his law and to prepare a people among whom he would send his son. The truth that Jesus then lived that perfect life that all mankind should have lived, loving God the Father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength every minute of every day, loving each person he encountered as he loved himself. The truth that then Jesus died on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God, paying the penalty that we deserve for our rebellion. The truth that God then raised him from the dead, showing that the penalty paid was sufficient. And then the promise, the promise, that all the sins of all who believe in Jesus will be covered by that death. And the promise that he will return, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, at an unknown future time, he will return suddenly. He will raise, God will raise the dead in Christ and gather them to himself together with all living believers and they will be with him for all eternity, perfected in him. And he will overwhelm and destroy all who continue to rage against him, executing perfect justice and destroying Satan himself. As Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2, then the lawless one, this agent of Satan, will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. As we pointed out in preaching on that a few weeks ago, kill with a puff. That's all Jesus needs to do to destroy this most powerful of all human enemies. And he brings to nothing. It doesn't even have to be his coming, just the appearance of his coming. And it's all over for this powerful enemy. 
So, the word gives us truth, and the word gives us promises. And those promises give us hope, because they are certain. Not a hope like, I hope the Panthers will win ten games this season. Not a hope like, that's very uncertain. But a hope that is absolutely certain. He promises this is going to come about. So our hope is not prosperity in this life. Our hope is not health in this life. Our hope is not peace in this life. Nor is our hope only heaven after I die. Our hope is in the triumph of King Jesus. Our hope is in the perfect justice that he will implement upon his return. Our hope is in the completion, the perfection of his church, so that the gates of hell do not prevail against her. God has promised Jesus will return. Jesus will triumph. That is our hope. So the word of God, hope, and then third, holiness. 1 Thessalonians 4 begins by urging the Thessalonians in the Lord Jesus, as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then Paul speaks of one specific type of being holy. That you abstain from sexual immorality. Verse 7, God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So God calls us to himself. If we are in Christ, if we have believed in Jesus, it is because God has called us. And when we respond to the call of the holy, holy, holy God, clearly, a holy, holy, holy God is not calling us to live impure lives. If we are identified with him, how can we live in a way which is contrary to his character? And as we just saw, he calls us to fulfill his purpose in making mankind. He created man in his image to shine forth with his character, to display what he is like. And so when he redeems us and calls us to himself, he is enabling us now to fulfill that initial purpose of the creation of mankind, to show the image of God. But there's an important preposition in this passage that we just read. As we noted when preaching on it, Paul doesn't say he called us for holiness, but he called us in holiness. Verse 7 again. God has not called us for impurity, 
but, and we would expect him to say, for holiness. But that's not what he says. He called us in holiness. And this truth is even deeper. It is a true statement to say he called us for holiness. Paul goes beyond that here. It's not that he calls us and then we are to become holy. Rather, when you believe, as soon as you believe, on that first instance of saving faith, when God saves you, he makes you holy immediately. That is, you are set apart for God. You have a holy status. And as Paul says here, you are then indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Your body becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's your identity. Holy. Loved. Set apart for God. If you are in Christ. Always remember that. Always remember that. If you believe in Jesus, you are called in holiness. And his will for us then, according to verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians 4, is our sanctification, which is just another way to say our holiness, our living out that holiness. He has given us a, a holy status initially, immediately, and now we are to live that out through holy lives, through our showing to those around us what Jesus is like, displaying his image, walking in a manner worthy of God, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.12. Many Christians spend long hours agonizing over the question, what is God's will for me? Right? And they ask questions, you know, should I go to this school or that school? Should I marry this person or that person? Should I take this job or that job? Should I buy this piece of property or not? And it's not at all wrong to pray about such decisions. We are to pray over such things. But it is wrong to focus more on such decisions than we focus on living holy lives. Paul says, this is the will of God. Your sanctification. That's not hard to understand. We don't need to search for it. We don't need to look for clues. We don't need to pray. What is your will for me? The will is clear. The question is, are we going to follow him in that or not? We owe him our very lives. We can never pay him back. But we can show what he is like and thus please him. And he has shown us so much mercy and grace and forbearance to our benefit that it is our joy to become like the one who loves us so much. We have freely received, says Jesus, freely give, like God the giver. We have been forgiven so much, freely forgive others. Furthermore, 
Because we are called in holiness, we are a holy nation today, as Peter says in his first epistle. And he promises to make us completely, practically holy when Jesus returns. 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 and 13. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. That's one aspect of being holy, as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And saints, you could... You could translate that as holy ones, with all his holy ones. So, we are holy in status. And through prayer, through the word, he will establish our hearts blameless in holiness when Jesus comes. Or he says this a slightly different way, saying truth in the words from 1 Thessalonians 5, 24 which are printed on the front of your bulletin. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, make you completely holy, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will surely do it. He will surely make you completely holy. He will surely make your whole spirit, soul, and body blameless when Jesus returns. In this way, 1 Thessalonians 2 I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 12. The name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This verse, I've read it so many times, and in preparing to preach on it, it really blew me away. The first part of it is the way I normally think. The name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. And that's what I've talked a lot about so far in this sermon. He's holy. He's righteous. We become holy by his power, by his grace. We display what he is like. But then he says, may you be glorified in him. think what that means is that who you really are, the way you individually, uniquely display the image of God, may that come about in you. See that? So Taylor, Michael, Cindy, Bruno, Rachel, each one of us has a unique way that we can display what God is like. And so we are glorified in Jesus 
as we take on his character. We don't all become the same clones of one another. Rather, each one of us has a family resemblance to Jesus, but we're all distinct as brothers and sisters from one another. And so who I am, the real Cody, is shown, is glorified when I am in Christ Jesus. And it's not shown or glorified any other way. And so the whole search that is so common in our culture to display my identity, right, in various ways. The only way to do that is in Christ Jesus, because that's who created you. And he made you in a certain special way. Unique. No other one like you. And you will become, you will fulfill who you are only in Christ Jesus. The name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he will make you blameless in holiness on that last day. You will glorify him, and in him you will be glorified. You will become what your creator made you to be. And when you fail, when you fail, You will be glorified in him in accordance with the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. When you fail, you know what? We glorify him not only when we display what he created us to be, not only when we display the character of Jesus, but we glorify him when we fail when we sin and then repent and confess and turn back to him. Because that magnifies the, the price that Jesus paid, the ransom that he paid for his people. It magnifies his love and mercy. And so we can glorify him even in our failure because of his grace. So today... Live out that holiness. Live out that holiness. Well, that leads us to our final heading, endurance, endurance. How do we live today in light of Jesus' return? Well, by his word, which we've seen, his promises, hoping in those promises, holiness, striving for holiness. And then as we read from Revelation, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have. That is, endure, endure, endure in faith, endure in hope. Thus, the first two verses, verses two and three of chapter one of 1 Thessalonians. We always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, 
and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Endurance. Because we have that hope, that certain hope, we hold fast to what we have until that hope is fulfilled, until Jesus comes. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. We ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. So they are enduring through persecution. Remember, Paul himself was persecuted in Thessalonica. They are enduring in hope. They are enduring in faith, despite the afflictions. And that comes about by trusting in those promises. So how should we endure? What do we need to endure in? I'm just going to mention, don't be afraid, nine things that we are to endure. Oh, actually, no, ten. Ten things that we are to endure in. Okay. But I'm not going to do much more than mention them. We are to endure in the Word. Obviously, the first thing that we mentioned today. We are to endure in the Word. We are to endure in hope, second. We are to endure in holiness, third. So the first three headings of this sermon. Word, hope, holiness. We are to endure in faith, in trusting in Jesus, in faith, in who God is. We are to endure in love. As I said a bit ago, love is so closely related to holiness because we're taking on the character of God. We are to endure in prayer. Paul prays in these books and he tells the Thessalonians to pray for him and to pray for the word, to run and be glorified. We are to endure, like the Thessalonians, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of opposition. We are to endure in the midst of false teaching, having our minds renewed so that we are sober and are able to think clearly, see the false teaching and, and reject it. We are to endure in the midst of our own fallenness, our own sinfulness, our own weakness. Confessing, repenting when we fail. And we are to endure in active dependence. This phrase you've heard me use several times over the years. It's been so helpful to me because for a long time I was caught up in this idea well, it's God's work, but I'm told to strive. How do I do that? How do I do that? How do I depend on him, but then also have all these commands, do this, do that? And I think that this idea of active dependence is what Paul is getting at throughout these Thessalonian letters as well as so much of the rest of the New Testament is getting at. That we 
depend on him. We strive not to depend on ourselves. We strive to turn from our own power, our own abilities, and turn to him. So we go to the word. We pray. We act in his power. And so Paul, at the end of Colossians chapter 1, I strive, how? With all his energy that so powerfully works in me. Every time I preach, I acknowledge that nothing is going to happen unless God's Spirit is at work. And I pray for him to be at work, trusting in his promises to be at work. And then I act. I have to act, right? I'm acting, but I know that I can get up here and preach and absolutely nothing happens. I can preach with passion. I can preach out of my own ability. And if the Spirit is not in it, nothing of consequence is going to happen. So there's this active dependence that we need to endure in if we are to live this type of God-glorifying life. If we are to endure in hope, endure in faith, endure in the work. We are to, the way Paul puts this in 1 Thessalonians 5, we read in the service, let me just repeat part of this. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. That's one thing we endure in. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Again, we endure in that. Always. Rejoice always. We endure in rejoicing. Pray without ceasing. We rejoice. We endure in prayer. Give thanks in all circumstances. We endure in giving thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That is, this is part of being sanctified, being made holy. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. That's enduring and holding fast to the word and not being deceived by the falsehoods of Satan. Hold fast what is good. Endure and holding fast to the good. Abstain from every form of evil. Endure in abstaining from evil. And that then leads to the verses we just cited. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Endure, 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 endure. He makes you stand. Or as the passage that so many of you memorized concludes from 1 Corinthians 15, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, enduring in all that. Because you know, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Your endurance is not in vain. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So the word of God, put it in its rightful place. Depend on it. Be in it. Endure in reading it. The hope that he gives us. Endure in hope and the promises of God, especially concerning Jesus' return. Endure in love. Endure in holding fast 
to one another. Endure in holiness. And God promises at the right time He's going to send the Lord Jesus. He will perfect you if you are in Christ, all of us together in Christ, into that spotless bride. And we will dance on the streets that are golden. The glorious bride and the great son of man. So remember, hold fast to what you have. Jesus says, I am coming soon. Let's pray together. Father God, how we thank you and praise you that you call us in holiness. And that your calling is certain. Father, enable us to hold fast to your word, hold fast to your promises, to strive for that holiness without which no one will see you, and to endure in following you. Renew our minds so that we can see you for who you are, and so that we will not be distracted by the wiles of Satan or the allures of this world. Help us to spur one another on to such endurance, to such holiness. Encourage us in your word, through one another, and send us out, O Father, to shine with your image, to show what you are like, to love and to proclaim the good news of the gospel and thereby glorify the name of Jesus and glorify us as you fulfill in us your purposes in creating us. Thank you, Father, for such great and precious promises. May we hold on to these truths unchanged from the dawn of time And live them out by your grace in active dependence on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.